This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 412th episode, we have a bunch of news, which I'm calling the Extinction Extravaganza. That makes extinction sound fun. Well, you just told me that you've got a whole bunch of stories about the extinction event. Yes. Or various extinctions, I guess. Uh, It's mostly around the non-avian dinosaur extinctions. Okay. Different facets of it. And I've got a new uh, abelosaurid from Argentina, which also involves extinction events, although not the end Cretaceous one. We have some happier news, too. (laughs) That's good. (laughs) (laughs) We also have Dinosaur of the Day, Brachytracolopan. But before we get into all of that, real quick, we want to thank some of our patrons. And this week, we have one new patron to thank, and that is Larissa. Thank you very much for joining. And then rounding out our shout outs, we've got Richard, Reed, Jonah, Taya, Diplodicate, Sam Menchasaurus, Jeff, JC, and Kentrosaurus. Awesome. Thank you so much for being patrons, being part of our community. We have a lot of fun with our community, like this new segment that doesn't have a name yet where we connect dinosaurs to anything. Yes. Somebody commented too, they were wondering if a turtle is a sandwich after our most recent episode. <laughs> I take that as positive feedback. Yeah. Got people thinking. So jumping into the news, I'm going to kick it off with the new dinosaur, the abelosaurid from Argentina, specifically Patagonia, so southern Argentina. And this new abelosaurid was published in Papers in Paleontology and written by Mattia A. Baiano and others. It's named... Elemgossum nubilis, I think. You know that's the name, but you, you mean you think the pronunciation? Yeah, exactly. Elemgossum is after a Tehuelche god. We've talked about that group before. The Tehuelche people were in Patagonia, or are still in Patagonia. And this god is the god of animals and has the power to petrify others and himself which is really interesting. I presume they mean literally petrifying, like Medusa, Hmm. which seems like a good reference for a fossil, Mm -hmm. turning things into stone. But abelosaurids are pretty intimidating too, so it would work if it was a metaphorical sort of petrification happening, like just being very scared. If you came across this abelosaur, you might be so petrified you don't run. Yes, it's possible. Or you foolishly think that they can't see you if you move, mm. like T-Rex in Jurassic Park. Nobody thinks that about abelosaurs. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Totally different. <laughs> I found another really fun explanation of Elamgossum from Travel Sewer, and it said Elamgossum, quote, is described as a big, strange animal covered by an enormous thick shell similar to an armadillo. <laughs> he used to steal people. And according to some narrations, he had a human face. According to others, he was a man medium height with back covered by a big armor. The Gunun Akuna had a song for Elamgasum. They said he was the quote unquote owner of all living animals and could only be killed by a ray. Hmm. They used to scrape the bones of the Elamgasum parentheses, any fossil, and give that powder to children to be strong and healthy, end quote. Interesting. So I guess Elam Gossam in this version also just applies to every fossil that they found Mm -hmm. in the ground. They were all Elam Gossam, which is interesting. Maybe that has to do with the whole petrifying feature of the god. 
And I also find it really interesting that they were using it as like a nutritional supplement. <laughs> yeah. It's sort of just like eating a random rock that you find. I think we've heard about that before in other cultures. Yeah, I think traditional Chinese medicine, they ground up fossils and ate them as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, clearly, you don't know what a fossil is. You find this thing in the ground, which seems like a bone, but incredibly strong. You might think, I wish my bones were that strong. Maybe if I eat this bone, my bones will be stronger. You could see how that could happen. But I have to say, it seems like based on that description of a huge armadillo that they should have used this name for an ankylosaur hmm. because, come on, huge armadillo. I like the two levels of petrifying, though. Yeah, yeah, it could be. Then the species name Nubilis is Latin for foggy days because it was foggy during their expedition in 2002. Uh, it's funny when the name gets a description of what it was like to excavate. Yeah. There's a lot of those. Irritator always comes to mind. That's the funniest one. Like, it was so annoying. so irritating to <laughs> dig this fossil out, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I like to compare Abelosaurus to Carnotaurus, since it's the best known member of Abelosauridae, but we don't have a skull or arms of Elamgossum, so we can't really say much in terms of a comparison. They did find a lot of toe bones from both feet, as well as some very partial leg bones and some fragments of vertebrae from the neck and tail, mostly like the far end of the tail, like near the tip. And I guess there were some unique features about those vertebrae, which is the main reason that they named this a new genus and species. But it's also because it came out at a, or it was alive at a fairly unique time for an abelosaurid. So it was around at about 90 million years ago. That's about 20 million years before Carnotaurus, so that means that it could have been very similar to Carnotaurus, or it could have been very different. <laughs> Again, we don't really know because we didn't find the arms or the head or anything. just depends on how much it changed over those 20 million years. But we do have abelosaurids from both before and after that time, just not at this exact time. So that's another reason why we might name it a new genus because it's the only one we have from that time period. So it's unlikely that any of the existing genus are also this dinosaur. They found seven lags or lines of arrested growth in the bone, but they think that at least one is missing, which would make it at least eight years old. And they believe it was old enough to reproduce, but that it was still growing. They tried to do phylogeny to see what it's related to, but the bones aren't complete enough to get an answer beyond brachyrostra. And brachyrostra is all the sister taxa to majungasaurinae. And Brachyrostra includes Carnotaurus, Scorpio Venator, and Abelosaurus. That still tells you something. Yeah, it's basically most of the famous South American Abelosaurids. That's the group that it's in, but we don't know where. And Majungasaurinae, or Majungasaurinae, for the record, has a bunch of Abelosaurids from Africa, India, and some from Europe as well. So it's sort of like you've got the South American group and then the everywhere else <laughs> group. <laughs> According to letters from Gondwana, Elam Gossam was about four meters or 13 feet long, but again, it was still growing, so it might have been bigger. At four meters long, that's not very big. That's only a little bit bigger than a lot of raptors. Right. So definitely not as big as Carnotaurus, but, you know. Who knows how big it got, though? Yeah, exactly. And there's always that thing where it's like we're looking at one individual, so... You don't really know as a species how big they were on average or anything. Elamgossum is the first abelosaurid known from that time period anywhere in the world. And it's stored at the Carmen Funes Municipal Museum in Nuquén Province, Argentina, which is around where it was found. Some of the dinosaurs it lived with include the really cool South American raptor Unenlagia, the alvarosaurid Patagonicus, and the theropod with massive hands, Megaraptor. Hmm. I really like the way the abstract concludes. It says, quote, Despite the problematic phylogenetic relationships of Elamgossum, it is important because it is the first abelosaurid from the Turonian coniacian interval, and it increases the diversity of this theropod family at a time of marked turnover in the tetrapod fauna of South America, global climate change, and mass extinction events recorded worldwide in the marine realm, end quote. 
That's a very good lead in to all of my stories. Yeah, that's why I did that. (laughs) (laughs) Well then, yeah, climate change and mass extinction events. Often go together. Often go together. And are also, I was thinking, have to do with, I think there were around eight papers about this kind of topic that we're covering today. It's one of those things that paleontology can tell us about that we can't really figure out in a lab. So I'll start by saying that there are multiple factors for the non-avian dinosaur extinction, which we know. And none of these ideas that we'll talk about today are anything new that we haven't discussed before, but there are new papers and new evidence that came out recently. The first one I'll start with was published by Theodore Green and others in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and they suggested that volcanic eruptions could be the main reason for mass extinctions in general. This team found a correlation between volcanic eruptions and large extinctions. They're saying it probably didn't happen by chance, and there may be a causal relationship between mass extinctions and continental flood basalts. That's large volcanic eruptions or a series of eruptions that flood really large areas of Earth with lava. Like in India. Exactly. The Deccan Traps which I'll get into in a second. They found this could be, quote, a major direct driver of extinctions throughout the Phanerozoic. That's the period from 538 million years ago to today. And they said that four out of five mass extinctions happened at the same time as lots of volcanic eruptions and flood basalt, again, the lava. And it left behind large amounts of igneous rock or large igneous provinces from the lava And those all lined up with the mass extinctions. So for an example, there's the Siberian traps in what is now Siberia, Russia. There were eruptions over 2 million years during the Permian-Triassic boundary that was around 252-ish million years ago. And basalt rock covers about 3 million square miles of the area. And just to give you an idea of how big that is, that's roughly the same size as Australia. That's big. Yeah. Now, looking at the Deccan Traps in what is now India, a quick summary here. They started forming at the end of the Cretaceous, around 66 million years ago. Lava covered about 0.58 million square miles. That's about half the size of India. And the eruption rate probably contributed to climate change and cooling or dropping of temperatures, about 2 degrees Celsius or 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's possible that the Deccan Traps may have led to the mass extinction of the non-avian dinosaurs, even if there wasn't an asteroid. At the very least, it made things worse. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know about (laughs) the Deccan Traps. We've talked about them so many times. I think the thing with Deccan Traps is the exact dating of it is still sort of subject for debate. Mm. And I, I remember covering a paper from a few years ago where they were saying they basically ended before the end Cretaceous. So there's like, there could be a 100,000 year gap between basically the Deccan Traps stopping, erupting, and then like the asteroid hitting. Oh, I see. And these things from the Deccan Traps and from most volcanic eruptions and stuff they get into the upper atmosphere things like sulfur dioxide to do global cooling but they tend to come down after like 5 10 20 years like individual years not millions or thousands of years yeah so i don't know it's like it has to line up really precisely with the mass extinction for it to be a smoking gun if it's within a few thousand years it's like there's volcanism everywhere all the time it's not really that surprising that there would be volcanism during in event because there's just volcanism all the time. But it's, I think what they're saying is it's like the large amount of eruptions. Yeah. And it lines up with these other extinctions. So it's just possibly helps show it's a factor. Yeah. Yeah, it could be a factor, especially because if it's something cooling, you know, if you have the cooling from an asteroid impact with like soot in the air Mm -hmm. combined with the cooling of sulfur dioxide in the upper atmosphere, then that works out. But other times, if it's something that heats up the earth, that kind of climate change, like a bunch of carbon dioxide combined with volcanism, then it's going to actually help (laughs) because they sort of, they can offset each other a little bit. Right. Because one cools and one heats. Yeah. I'd say this next paper 
there's also been studies that say otherwise. This was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences by Fei Han and others, and they suggested that dinosaurs were on the decline before they went extinct. Oh man, this goes back and forth so often. It does. In this study, they collected more than 1,000 dinosaur eggshell samples from the Shanyang Basin in China. This is during the late Cretaceous. It also included a few tyrannosaur and sauropod fossils. And they found only three dinosaur eggshell taxa, Macrowithis, Alongatuithis, and Stromatuithis. And those are all either oviraptorid or hadrosaurid eggshells, they think. Mm-hmm. These eggshells, they're also from about 68 to 66 million years ago. They analyzed the rock layers and they did computer modeling to the samples. And they found there was lower diversity in dinosaurs during the last 2 million years of the Cretaceous. And they suggested that there was a decline in diversity before the non-avian dinosaurs went extinct. They suggested that the dinosaurs were vulnerable before the Deccan traps and the Chicxulub impact. But we've talked about papers that conflict with this idea. Like you were saying, it goes back and forth. There was one actually in 2020 published in the Royal Society by Joseph Bonsor and others called Dinosaur Diversification Rates Were Not in Decline Prior to the KPG Boundary. And that cautions that we're still missing a lot of fossils, so it's really hard to say if they were in decline. Yeah. So this is just looking at eggshells. Mm-hmm. That's a really, we haven't seen that method before. No. <laughs> like you look at all the eggshells you can find and try to see if you can determine what dinosaur they came from. It's a good way to go about it. Yeah, maybe. There's always that preservation bias question. Right. For like, well, if you're in an area where a dinosaur, one type of dinosaur laid an egg, but other dinosaurs were looking for a different sort of nesting site, you're not going to find those eggs there. But the interesting thing to me is I think it's hard to say for all of dinosaurs mm-hmm. because dinosaurs have so many different groups. And that's what we were seeing before. It's like if you look at all of dinosaurs, maybe there was slightly less diversity at the end of the Cretaceous. But if you look at it by group, some of the groups were exploding in diversity right. at that point in time. So I think the authors of this paper, they were studying what was going on in what's now China at the end of the Cretaceous. And then in the paper, they said that this kind of correlates with what was going on with North America. But I couldn't find too many details. This was actually behind a paywall, so it was hard to find all the details of the study. Yeah, I'm a little skeptical. I'd like the idea of trying a different way rather than just looking at the number of taxa or something like that to estimate how well dinosaurs were doing. But I'm not sure about eggshells and like the number, unless you have a long time period, which you almost never get Mm. in like similar rock where you could say, you know, we have this layer here and it's got all of these types of eggshells and then it continues on. And over time, you can see the number of types of eggshells reducing. But there's just so much preservation bias there that you never really know if it's actually a missing animal or if it's just a missing fossil that was around at the time. I think these are all pieces that are going to help us. I don't know if we'll ever know for sure what happened, what exactly happened. But we keep studying all these different aspects, which is good. And it helps kind of give a clear picture. Yeah. I also think it's sort of a red herring saying that dinosaurs would have gone extinct anyway Mm. because dinosaurs didn't even go extinct. Oh, because birds. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, okay, maybe dinosaurs would have continued to evolve towards birds. Like some of them would have continued to get in more bird-like shapes and things like that. But to say that dinosaurs were on their way out and were about to go extinct anyway, it's like, well, they never even went extinct. So Mm. I just, yeah, (laughs) it always bugs me. (laughs) So moving on to another factor in the dinosaur extinction. This study was published in Science Advances by Tao Long and others, and they studied the moon to better understand asteroid impacts on Earth. Oh, wow. So like chunks of the Earth that flew up all the way and landed on the moon? The glass beads or the spherules that we've talked about before with the Chicxulub impact that Mm -hmm. And I think we've talked about, and we see it in documentaries too, where those glass beads 
went so far around the Earth, you can see them in all different sites. Some of them also made it to the moon. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. So in this study, they analyzed 215 microscopic glass beads from soil samples from the moon. These soil samples were returned by China's Chang'e 5 mission in 2020. And as a reminder, there's just so much heat and pressure from these impacts that they formed the glass beads that shot up into the atmosphere and then fell back down. Or in the case of the moon, I guess they didn't really fall back down. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. What goes up must come down, but not necessarily on the same planet or moon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's chemical characteristics that help show the crater size that probably created the glass beads. They also did some numerical modeling and they used geological surveys to figure out when the glass beads were formed. And some of them were from around 66 million years ago. Oh, that's so cool. So same time as the Chicxulub impact crater. They also found that there may have been smaller accompanying impactors, smaller asteroids that hit around the same time. Hmm. They said, quote, several substantial craters on Earth do have well-established ages within about 10 million years of Chicxulub. Also, some of the lunar impact craters that they studied are estimated to be between 73 and 53 million years ago, including the second largest crater, which is Rumker H. And that one could have happened around the time of Chicxulub. Interesting. Yeah. They said the 10-kilometer impactor that created Chicxulub, quote, is proposed to originate in the outer asteroid belt through accumulation of weak orbital resonances, end quote. So... These orbiting bodies, they have gravitational influence on each other. And they said, quote, a cluster of lunar craters at this time would not be unreasonable, end quote. Because multiple of those asteroids in the asteroid belt might have been messed with at the same time. Right. They're all influencing each other. Hmm. So it's cool because you can study the history of the moon. That can help us know more about asteroids that have hit Earth. That's so crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I really wonder... Why else? Because my first thought is like, okay, you find something from 66 million years ago and it looks similar to a tektite or a glass spherule or whatever that you find on Earth. Makes sense that it would be from the same impact. Mm -hmm. But I wonder when it's a case where the only evidence we have of an impact event is a spherule on the moon, if there might be another explanation for it. Mm. Like, is it possible that It's just an impact on the moon and it created a glass spherule or could it have been an impactor on like Jupiter or Mars or Venus or something and a few of those pieces made it or is that are the odds of them making it all the way to the moon from somewhere so distant as another (laughs) planet so tiny that like you wouldn't expect to find them you know if there's 250 of them and like 10 of them right are from 50 million years ago you'd be like well that there's no way that that could be from another planet i think if you can also figure out the size of the crater that created the glass beads it's like how do you match that up if, if you know of this one crater that fits that size that hit earth where else could it have been from around that same time yeah i was just thinking maybe the moon because mm. the moon is covered in craters And yeah, that's just interesting. That's really interesting. So just new ways of looking at things. I love that idea. That's a really clever way to go about it because the moon doesn't have the same erosion as Earth at all. Like Mm -hmm. things that land on the moon just stay there for so long because there's no wind and there's no water, (laughs) like any of that stuff. So like even things like the sand or the regolith on the moon is so much different than what's on earth. It's like really coarse and it's sort of, I've heard it described almost like little pyramids or like really jagged pieces Mm -hmm. because it doesn't erode down to like round, smoother shapes like we have on earth, which is why the footprints and stuff leave more sharp, contrasty definition because it's like such a sticky, hard substance. So anyway. I could see how you might find really old things there because the erosion is just so much less. Yeah. That's a really cool opportunity. Something to think about during our ad break, which we're going to go to right now. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. 
As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. So if you think about how there might have been multiple craters around the Chicxulub impact time, this next study is very relevant. This was published in Science Advances by Nicholson and others, and they found an underwater crater that is from around the same time as Chicxulub. Hmm. So we're back to Earth. They discovered this crater that possibly formed around the same time as the Chicxulub impact crater. And they said it could be, quote, part of a closely timed impact cluster or by breakup of a common parent asteroid, end quote. That reminds me of what was it called DART, the thing you talked about last mm-hmm. week or the week before. And they had the moon. Yeah. And it's basically, it was like a two asteroid or meteor system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe this crater is under the sea. It's about 250 miles or 400 kilometers off the coast of West Africa. It's called the Nadir Crater. It's covered by 980 to 1300 feet or 3 to 400 meters of marine sediment. And it's estimated that the Nadir impactor could be around 1300 feet to 400 meters in diameter. Okay, so that's significantly smaller, I think, than the Chicxulub yes. impactor. Wasn't that like 10 kilometers or something? Yeah, it's it's definitely smaller, but still sizable. Mm-hmm. The team used seismic data and numerical models to build a model of the crater formation and its impact on Earth. Uh, they modeled an asteroid that was 8.7 miles or 14 kilometers wide. And the hypothesis is that after the impact, there was a fireball with a radius larger than three miles or five kilometers an air blast at about 290 miles or 470 kilometers per hour that could be heard across the globe, and a magnitude 6.5 to 7 earthquake that would possibly trigger landslide tsunamis. It probably produced a lot of black carbon. It's hard to know at this point if this would have affected the whole world, though, or just the region where the impact happened. The crater has details that make it likely to be, quote, a complex crater with an impact origin, end quote. Things like the height of the rim, the area around it dipping, details like that. They also estimated that it hit Earth around the same time as Chicxulub, but we don't know this for sure. The only way you can know is by drilling into it and testing the minerals. That's the next step. We Mm -hmm. did it with the Chicxulub crater. Yeah. And it's only, I mean... It's pretty amazing because, you know, 50, 100 years ago, the thought of 
getting down 1300 feet into the crust yeah. to test something would be like you'd never do that especially underwater but nowadays thanks it's to oil possible. exploration we do that kind of stuff all the time <laughs> it's not <laughs> even a big deal like you could go down miles no problem so somebody just needs to get the grant and the funding to go out there and give it a shot how interesting if you could connect this crater with the studies on the moon and everything mm-hmm. and find that yes it was all related yeah I'm still that moon thing is so crazy. <laughs> I, how can you? I can't imagine how you can relate them to a diameter of a impactor because it's just it's crazy. Yeah, but that impactor, even though it sounds really bad with the big fireball and the magnitude six and a half to seven earthquake, that's like nothing compared to the Chicxulub. I think Chicxulub was a ten or a eleven or something on the magnitude moment. So funny you should say that. <laughs> Going back to Chicxulub, this next paper is on the impact it had. This was published by Molly Range and others in Advancing Earth and Space Science Advances, and they modeled the tsunami after the Chicxulub impact. Hold on. The paper, the journal is Advancing Earth and Space Science Advances? Yes. It starts and ends with advance. It does. <laughs> oh, man. That's hilarious. It's a very advanced journal. (laughs) Or it is advancing science a lot. (laughs) (laughs) So they modeled the tsunami after the Chicxulub impact. The asteroid hit shallow water. It caused a large tsunami. We know this, but now we've got more details thanks to this study. And they said they made the first global simulation of the tsunami. They found it had up to 30,000 times more energy than the Indian Ocean tsunami that was on December 26, 2004, and that's one of the largest tsunamis in the modern record. So 48 hours after impact, the Chicxulub impact, tsunami waves reached most of the world's coastlines. Mm -hmm. The tsunami was so strong it scoured the seafloor thousands of miles away from the impact site. And it disturbed and eroded sediments in ocean basins halfway around the world. You can see a gap in the sediment or you can see a jumble of older sediments. That's how you see disturbances. And you could see these disturbances on the shores of New Zealand, which was about 7,500 miles or 12,000 kilometers away. Wow. Yeah. And that's on the wrong side, too, of South America Mm -hmm. because this happened in basically the Gulf of Mexico. You'd think New Zealand would be in a relatively safe spot. But I guess not. Nowhere really. was safe. Yeah. <laughs> the team analyzed records of 165 marine boundary sections, and most sediments came from cores collected in ocean drills. And they're planning on doing a follow up study to estimate the amount of coastal flooding from the tsunami. So, the next step. Yeah, that's a really important detail because you could sort of see how much of the seafloor got disrupted by it and that's interesting Mm -hmm. but we also want to know what that happened on on land yeah exactly we want to know all the details yeah i was kind of surprised that they claim it's the first global simulation of the tsunami because i remember seeing one years ago where you could sort of see the oceans ringing this these waves bouncing everywhere and and when i looked at it i was like okay antarctica looks Mm -hmm. pretty okay which is why i thought maybe new zealand might be too although new zealand was in a little bit of a different spot back then But yeah, it looked like the best place was either basically at the poles Mm -hmm. (laughs) because the impactor was near the equator. Right. So So as far away as you could be. Yeah. Like the northern side of Eurasia or the, you know, on Antarctica were like the best, but there was still quite a bit of energy hitting those spots. Mm -hmm. So you're right. There was no good place. And then the moon. Yeah. The moon. It was getting hit by stuff too. That's true. And it got its own glass beads. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but it might be that they called it the first global simulation because they were actually basing it on sections that mm-hmm. they took rather than just a sort of empirical model. So we often talk about tsunamis with the Chicxulub impact. And then, of course, there's the earthquakes, which we were kind of talking about earlier. This next one, this was something that was presented at the Geological Society of America meeting this month in October by Herman Bermudez. Well, we didn't go, so I'm going off of a news release here, but it sounded cool. 
The idea is that the Chicxulub impact may have triggered an earthquake that lasted weeks to months. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I thought it was more like days. <laughs> <laughs> like maybe that's what we used to think. They estimated that the amount of energy released was 10 to the 23rd joules, which is 50,000 times more energy than the 9.1 Sumatra earthquake in 2004. That is an insane amount of energy. Mm-hmm. That's a larger number than Avogadro's number. <laughs> you know, the 6.02 times 10 to the 23rd. <laughs> That's crazy. That is a lot of energy. Yes. I don't even know what that is because usually it's like kilojoules, megajoule. <laughs> it's just an insane amount that I'm glad we didn't live through. Yes. We probably wouldn't have made it. No. We're too big. Yeah. So they collected data in Texas, Alabama, and Mississippi. And in the past, they'd done previous work in Colombia and Mexico on this. So there's a lot of data here. And found a layer of small glass beads, or those spherules, on Colombia's Gorgonia Island. This was back in 2014, that were ejected after the impact event. Because again, those glass beads made it everywhere. Mm -hmm. And based on that, it would have taken weeks, two months for that layer of glass beads to form. The layer also had a lot of faults and cracks, which came from earthquakes or a mega earthquake. And they found evidence of earthquake with faults and cracks on the other sites in the U.S. and Mexico as well. So are they saying that these glass beads that took weeks to form are in a sediment that looks like there's earthquakes happening at the same time? And that's how they know that the earthquake was still going on when those yeah, beads landed? Like there's just there's evidence of the earthquakes, and then the fact that it's a layer of glass beads, it would have taken weeks to months for that whole layer to form. And that layer that they're formed in, it has the evidence of the earthquake? It's evidence of deformation from the earthquake. Okay, yeah. That's really interesting. I didn't realize it took that long for the glass beads to get back down onto the planet after shooting up in the atmosphere. Well, if some of them can make it to the moon, some of them <laughs> didn't make it quite far enough to get pulled towards the moon, but it still took a long time to come back down. Yeah, just into like low Earth orbit mm -hmm. <laughs> and then back down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. That was quite an impact. Yes. A couple more papers that are kind of along this line, but it's more dinosaur-focused, and it's actually more about how climate affected dinosaurs. I want to thank Southern Methodist University for sending this first one our way. This was published in Geosciences by Anthony Fiorio and others, and they found that precipitation played a role in the abundance and success of hadrosaurs and ceratopsians in the late Cretaceous in what is now Alaska. Hmm. What kind of precipitation? They talked about mean annual precipitation, and that's rainfall and water equivalent of snowfall. So, yes. <laughs> it's probably rain, given the ecosystem. Although it is Alaska, so you never know. They studied and compared three formations. There's the Prince Creek Formation, the Lower Cantwell Formation, and the Shignik formation. And these formations are close enough in time to compare climates. They're in they're from the late Cretaceous. And they're also close in paleo elevation. They're quote at or near sea level. So it helps show that there was a widespread ecosystem, quote, capable of supporting large-bodied herbivores. And these are herbivores that most of them weighed over 2,200 pounds or a thousand kilograms. They said the three formations are, quote, at least partially correlative, end quote, which justifies comparing them to give a bigger picture of what life was like in the late Cretaceous in what is now the Arctic of Alaska. The hypothesis was that the abundance of large hadrosaurids and ceratopsids suggested the temperature and precipitation played a role in their success. And it's interesting to study because... Today, large herbivores like elephants play a key role in their ecosystems. And climate, plants, and herbivores, they're all related and they affect ecosystems. And the same can be said of paleo ecosystems. Also, Earth was like a greenhouse at the time, and looking at the past could give us some insight into the future with climate change, which is what you were talking about earlier, Garrett. 
the Prince Creek Formation, there were a lot of conifers and dinosaur fossils that have been found in a lot of bone beds, hadrosaurs and ceratopsians. The Lower Cantwell Formation had a lot of angiosperms, flowers and seeds, and thousands of tracks have been found of pterosaurs, theropods, birds, hadrosaurs, ceratopsians. And the Shignik Formation, many fossil leaves and carbonized fossil wood was found as well as hadrosaur tracks. They found that the primary factor for why there were so many large herbivores, hadrosaurs and ceratopsians, was the climate. The amount of precipitation and the temperature was not uniformly distributed in the late Cretaceous, what is now Alaska, you know, it's different in different areas. They found that there overall were more hadrosaurs than ceratopsians, and they also found that hadrosaurs preferred the wetter, warmer regions, and ceratopsians preferred the drier areas. They cited another study from 2013 that looked at the oxygen isotope composition of hadrosaur and ceratopsian teeth, and that helped figure out where they got their food. Oh, interesting. Okay. So because there was a fair amount of precipitation, there were more hadrosaurs because they like it wet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And warm. That's cool. I guess the reason they're saying that rather than just the type of plants that were around was because there were a lot of different types of plants. Like you were saying, one area had a bunch of trees, basically. Another one had a bunch of more flowering plant type stuff, but still we're getting hadrosaurs everywhere because it was raining a bunch. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Go hadrosaurs, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. They were the one of the ones that was really diversifying like crazy Mm -hmm. at the end of the Cretaceous, which is one of those things where it's like, oh yeah, there were less dinosaurs. There was less diversity at the end of the Cretaceous. It's like there were so many hadrosaurs. (laughs) There were hadrosaurs everywhere blowing up. But maybe that was the thing. There were so many hadrosaurs, but fewer other kinds of dinosaurs. Yeah, but they could just be taken over. That's true. And there are so many fewer scientists who study hadrosaurs. And we know from talking to scientists that like, if there's a bone that you don't collect to put in your collections, there's a decent chance it's going to be a hadrosaur because <laughs> they're kind of ubiquitous. <laughs> Speaking of dinosaur diversity, and actually this is just related, the next paper, this was published in Paleontology by Thomas Cullen and others, and it was saying that dinosaurs may have been successful and diverse because of the differences in their diets. Yeah, definitely. You can't all eat the same thing. Yes. That would be trouble. So we know a lot of large herbivores coexisted alongside each other in their respective herds, but how did they do it? We don't necessarily know they were in herds. Well, they did coexist though. Yes. <laughs> so how did they do it? It could have been through eating different foods, eating plants that were at different heights, maybe the environment separated them, or was there something else? The team studied strontium isotopes, elements in fossils, from fossils from the Oldman Formation of Alberta, Canada. So that's from the late Cretaceous. And the environment at that time was subtropical to warm. Fossils included hadrosaurs, ceratopsians, ankylosaurs, tyrannosaurs, crocodilians, and fish. And they used a Dremel to get samples. Just thought I'd throw that in there because, Garrett, you've got a Dremel that you use sometimes. They're, not, they're a good tool. Yeah. And the amount of isotopes show the types of plants the dinosaurs ate. Eating plants with deeper roots, like larger shrubs and trees, had a different composition compared to uh, eating plants with shallow roots, like ferns and small ground plants. And they found a lot of differences between hadrosaurids and other ornithischians, which included ceratopsids and ankylosaurs, and between hadrosaurids and predators such as tyrannosaurs. They also compared isotopes from some other formations. There's the Judith River Formation, Dinosaur Park Formation, and Pierre Shale Formation. The team suggested that hadrosaurs moved around larger distances to get resources compared to other types of dinosaurs. They potentially went at least... 30 to 60 miles or 50 to 100 kilometers south, at least the hadrosaurs from that region, not all hadrosaurs in general. Yeah, it seems like hadrosaurs have a pretty good body for long distance. Yeah. They got long legs, bipedal. (laughs) I'm trying to imagine ankylosaurs moving as far as hadrosaurs. Like, nah. It's a heavy body to move. And little short legs. Mm -hmm. It doesn't seem like a body built for long-distance travel. Yeah. So they found not much overlap between isotopes in hadrosaurs and other herbivores. Hmm. It could be hadrosaurs ate plants at different heights, 
compared to other herbivores, and they, they also moved around more. However, it's interesting that ceratopsids and ankylosaurs, they're kind of similar in height, and they have similar isotope compositions. So that suggests that they have a lot of overlap in their habitats and the plants they ate. Though they said that their teeth are different from each other. Yeah. So that may have helped in terms of them eating different types of plants instead of competing for the same ones. Interesting. But the isotopes are similar. So I guess there's a, a limitation maybe to how much difference or which types of plants give you different results from the isotopes. Like maybe there isn't super good resolution there. Yeah. They're also saying in modern ecosystems, it can get competitive seasonally, like you see in the African savanna, where it gets more competitive for food in the dry seasons. Mm. But it's hard to know for sure what happened with the dinosaurs. And what season these dinosaurs fossilized. Yeah. Because <laughs> it could be that we're just sampling like the equivalent to the African savanna in the dry season, or it could be the abundant season. Yeah. You don't, we can't tell what season things fossilized in most of the time. It does seem though that hadrosaurs were doing really well. Yeah, they were killing it. <laughs> they. It's funny because- as a kid, when you look at hadrosaurs and you look at all the different dinosaurs, you're like, oh, the stegosaur had all this cool armor and so did ankylosaurs and triceratops had these horns for defense. Like, what did the hadrosaurs have? Like, how did they not just get eaten by everything? Yeah. But they were doing so well. Oh, yeah. They had, the they had their ways. They did. They had a beak. They had dental batteries going. They could travel. They could probably move pretty quickly. They enjoyed the weather. Yeah. Some of them <laughs> were really big. Yeah. Like a Montosaurus and stuff, they were huge. So yeah, they they did fine. Oh yeah. Even though, don't let Tenontosaurus getting constantly eaten by Denonychus all over the place fool you. <laughs> <laughs> Hadrosaurs were just fine. Just listen to our Hadrosaur Hoot Nanny episode. <laughs> there were a lot of them. Yeah. All right, we've got some shorter news items, starting with eighty million year old dinosaur eggs were recently found in Jiangxi Province in China. It's pretty old. I feel like we talk about a lot of eggs, fossilized eggs being found in China. We talk about a lot of fossilized everything being found in China. Yeah. It's a hot spot for fossils. Mm -hmm. So these eggs were found in nests. There were three dinosaur eggs that were nearly round and well-preserved. And there were also seven other egg prints found on the rock. So I don't know what happened to those other eggs. Could have been anything. Yes. <laughs> eggs are attractive to both human collectors and animals that want to eat them and then they also erode pretty easily yeah so it sounds like there were about 10 eggs in that nest yeah or there used to be yeah <laughs> <laughs> if they're mostly round i guess that means they might have been like a titanosaur or something it's it's hard to say yeah unless you have the embryo probably not an overraptor it mm. they did look at the microstructure of the eggshells and they said that they were solicolithidae Coraloidulithus, but I don't know enough about Ugenus, different <laughs> Ugenera. Yeah. In Skåne, Sweden, large carnivorous dinosaurs from the late Triassic were recently found. These were found in the Nora Albert Quarry. They're from about 203 million years ago. They include footprints, which the footprints indicate the animal was similar in size to Allosaurus, and that's very large for the Triassic. Yeah, that's true. They've also found fossil bones, plants, and coprolite. No complete skeletons, at least not yet. They do think that there's at least three new dinosaur species in this collection. I think they've found something like seven species total. Hmm. So four we know about and three new ones. There's some herbivorous dinosaurs in there too. The fossils are at the Museum of Evolution in Uppsala, where they'll be studied. It's all tracks? No, tracks and fossil bones and plants and coprolites. Oh, wow. A lot That's of stuff. really cool. Yeah, so I'm excited what they'll find once they've prepared and studied these. Yeah. And the three new species. Hey, Allosaurus is almost unbelievable. There was a little discussion about this in our Discord. Someone from Sweden posted it and said, referenced like maybe they'll call it ikea sora or ikea <laughs> which i really enjoyed but yeah and they were saying too that it's bigger than dilophosaurus which is sort of an early jurassic and kind of considered the first like big predatory dinosaur mm. but 
if this is, this would be so much bigger than that. Allosaurus is pretty huge. Yeah. And then think about Triassic when all the dinosaurs, we thought they were small then. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of Ladumahati when they found that. I think that was either the very end of the Triassic or the very beginning of the Jurassic. But it was so much bigger than we thought sauropods and sauropodomorphs were at that time. And it was just like, okay, I guess some of them were just huge already then. So maybe it wasn't just the herbivores, which were occasionally huge at the end of the Triassic. There might have been a huge carnivore. Yeah, crazy. It's too bad that we have so little Mesozoic rock in Scandinavia left because it basically all got scraped off by glaciers. Mm. So most of the stuff is like a billion years old because we lost like a billion years of the history with lots of glaciers. But I guess there's that a little sliver of Sweden in the south that still has some Mesozoic rock where you can find cool stuff like this on occasion. Yeah, that's true. In another part of the world, thanks to a listener who told us about this one via Instagram, Reykjavik might be getting a Triceratops skeleton to display. The Triceratops is from Wyoming. There's a man, Marcus Erickson, who works for Leap Lab, and Leap Lab's been excavating this Triceratops. Erickson wants to gift the Triceratops to the city of Reykjavik in Iceland. And it's his five-year-old daughter who first found the bones. They're currently nicknamed the skeleton Ken, (laughs) but uh, one of Erickson's conditions to gifting to... Reykjavik is that it be given his mother's name and also be put on display in a museum or an ongoing exhibition in the city. They found about 30% of the skeleton and they plan to 3D print the missing pieces. There's signs of bite marks on the tailbone, so it seems like it got away after an attack. Oh, cool. Yeah. The city council has now got a working group to figure out the cost of accepting the Triceratops and then transporting and installing the skeleton in the city. Yeah. It reminds me of the story of the Statue of Liberty, how I think it was originally built for the Suez Canal and they Egypt rejected it. They were like, what are we going to, we're going to have to like build a whole thing for this. And it's like, it's not just like you get a gift and you're done with it. It's There's a lot of expense to putting something like that together. Mm-hmm. And then I guess we got re-gifted it and they sort of rebranded it as the Statue <laughs> of Liberty And then they had to like fundraise to get a pedestal for it and all that. So I could see the same thing happening here. Like we really want this Triceratops, but it's going to be super expensive. Right. We need to get like welding and all this stuff done. Fossils are heavy. Yeah, for sure. Especially you're talking about a Ceratopsian skull. Those Mm -hmm. things are huge and heavy. Mm -hmm. And transporting it from Wyoming to Iceland, that's (laughs) a long way. I feel like transporting almost anything to Iceland is not simple. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, speaking of Triceratops, National Fossil Day was October 12th, and to celebrate it, Mississippi State University's Dunn-Siler Museum had a competition to name their Triceratops. They've got a cast of a skull from Wyoming, and the winning name is Topsy. Huh. Interesting name. Yeah, it's a cute name. That's the name of one of the characters in Uncle Tom's Cabin, which I'm reading right now. Random... Connection to dinosaurs. Yeah. Yeah, It's the first time I saw the name Topsy. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder if there's any connection. Maybe they were reading that book too. Uh, I think it just sounds kind of like Ceratopsian. Oh, yeah. That makes more sense. Yeah. That would be my guess. (laughs) Or Triceratops. Yeah. Yeah. And last in the news, there's a man in New Zealand who used VR to sculpt, and then now he's 3D printing a life-size model of a Tyrannosaurus. That's a lot of 3D printing. Oh, yeah. It's taken over 3,000 hours to print, and he's used 97 kilograms of filament so far. He's printed about half of it. So he's, I was going to ask, is he 3D printing? Because there's a lot of different ways you can 3D print things. I don't know if you saw, I took some pictures at Research Casting International. They have this giant thing, which basically carves out a styrofoam, (laughs) which is still technically like a type of 3D printing, but you can do really big things pretty quickly. This sounds like it's the type of 3D printer you can buy at the store for a couple hundred bucks and you put in the plastic filament and it slowly prints a tenth of a millimeter at a time, layer by layer. He said in this article that there was no 3D print company in New Zealand interested in printing (laughs) his sculptures, at least in the format that they were in. And then he met somebody who helped him get started 
and he started with a Ender 3 Pro. I don't mm-hmm. know too much about 3D printing. Yeah, it's under a thousand bucks. It's like a, a pretty standard consumer level 3D printer. Probably why it's taking so many hours. Yes. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that can print is like ma- under a foot by a foot mm. by a foot. Oh, yeah. So you're doing less than a cubic foot at a time. You're making a life-size model. Trying to build something that's 40 feet long. And I mean, the skull alone is going to be a ton of pieces. So I hope he has good glue and a lot of patience. He's got an explainer video. He, he goes by the handle at Top Gunsai. So he goes through this if anyone's interested in how he does it. I do want to try something like this. I've thought about what dinosaur could I 3D print. Mm-hmm. I'd probably Not go a with- a Tyrannosaurus. Yeah, I'd probably go with like a Velociraptor because <laughs> we could actually fit it in our house. Exactly. He says he can't fit the Tyrannosaurus at his home. He does want to have it, I think, on display somewhere in New Zealand. Yeah. You could do it one thing at a time. I mean, the skull, though, even that is going to take up like, Mm -hmm. if you were putting it together, it'd be like your entire dining room table (laughs) kind of thing. (laughs) But you could do it one boat at a time and then like squirrel them away somewhere. Oh, my goodness. He's also built a virtual reality museum of dinosaurs and prehistoric animals. Mm -hmm. And then he just decided to print the last T-Rex he made, which I didn't even think about sculpting in VR. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That is one of the cool things you can do in VR. I wonder how accurate it is if he sculpted it himself. You should watch his explainer video. I guess I need to. It's not cheap either. 97 kilograms of filament. It's usually like 10 to 20 bucks per kilogram. So actually, maybe he gets a bulk discount. If you buy it 100 kilograms at a time, maybe you can get it for like five bucks. But that's still like $500 worth of filament, even if you got it super cheap. Yeah. That's dedication. Is this giving you ideas? <laughs> Not really. Oh, okay. I don't want to build a, a whole T-Rex that way. Well, you're saying a different dinosaur. Yeah, it would be good. I might need to get a new 3D printer though. Ours is How a about janky. a micro-raptor? <laughs> micro. <laughs> Did you just pick that because it has micro in the name and it sounds yeah, small? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's not, it's not that small. I could find something smaller. I would want one that we have a good idea of what it looked like in 3D, not mm, just like smash. It's a tachosaurus. Yeah, those are kind of big, but that would be They're cool. They're much smaller than a raptor. With the tachosaurus, you could do a fully fleshed out version, which would be pretty cool, mm-hmm. rather than just a skeletal. All right, maybe one day. And now we're going to pause for one more sponsor break, but when we get back... Sabrina's going to tell us our dinosaur of the day. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Brachytracolopan, which was a request from Thieving Raptor Lorenzo via our Patreon and Discord, so thanks. It was a dicreosaurid sauropod that lived in the late Jurassic in what is now Chubut Province, Argentina, in the Cañadón Calzareo Formation. It's similar in shape to other sauropods. It walked on all fours and had a long tail, but it had a short neck. In a silhouette, it kind of looks like an iguanodont with a really bulky body and the relatively short neck, but it's got a much longer whip-like tail. Weird. Yeah. Sauropods and short necks are weird. <laughs> it's estimated to be less than 33 feet or 10 meters long. Again, with that short neck, the, the neck is about 40% shorter than other dicreosaurids. And dicreosaurids are diplodocoids. That means its neck is shorter than any known sauropod. Wow. And dicreosaurids also include Amargosaurus, the really cool one with mm-hmm. like the split spine. So they got all sorts of weird stuff going on with necks. Yeah. They're also known for their shorter necks. Huh. I think I'm always distracted by the fact that it's got these two spines yeah, things so sticking out of the neck. Look as short. I just never notice the length of it because I'm just looking at the cool. Unless you're comparing it to a mementosaurus, maybe. <laughs> yeah, everything has a short neck compared to a mementosaurus. <laughs> That's true. Well, these short necks may have helped with low browsing. It probably ate plants that grew to about three to six and a half feet, or one to two meters tall. It might have filled the same niche as large iguanodontians, which weren't around in the late Jurassic in Gondwana, but there were many large iguanodontians during that time in what is now North America, where there were no dicreosaurids. Hmm. Brachytracolopan helped show that dicreosaurids had a rapid radiation and really spread out in the late Jurassic in the Southern Hemisphere 
after Gondwana separated from the northern continents in the Middle Jurassic. Brachytrachylopan was named in 2005 by Oliver Raut and others. The type species is Brachytrachylopan messii, and the species name is in honor of Daniel Messa, a local shepherd who found the dinosaur while looking for stray sheep. The genus name means short-necked pan, and it refers to Pan, the god of the shepherds. With a short neck? Yeah, with a short <laughs> neck. Interesting. <laughs> I guess because of the shepherd and pan. Yeah, they're not related. It's not that it looks like a god with a short neck. It's that it has a short neck and it was found by a shepherd. Mm -hmm. The fossils were found articulated. The holotype includes vertebrae, including eight neck vertebrae, part of the ribs, part of the lower left leg, and part of the hip. Probably had 12 neck vertebrae, like other dicreosaurids. They're just shorter, I suppose. Yes. Sort of like how we have the same number of neck vertebrae as a giraffe. Yeah, but our <laughs> necks are very different. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're talking about how this dicreosaurid had a really short neck. What would it think of our neck? Yeah. Be like, you call that a neck? Right. <laughs> Why are you judging me for my short neck? Yeah. <laughs> 40% shorter than a thing with a crazy long neck. <laughs> Now, a lot of the fossils in the area it was found were probably eroded away before it was discovered. In a study published last month, Guillermo Windholtz and others did histology on Brachytrachylopan and found the holotype was not fully grown yet. And though it was large, it was also not yet sexually mature. Hmm. So it was probably still growing. Maybe a lot of that neck growth happened later in life. <laughs> it's hard to say. <laughs> they found that the holotype specimen was at least four years old when it died. That is not very old. No. Other dinosaurs that lived around the same time and place included abelosaurids, stegosaurs, and other sauropods, like Tehuelchisaurus. Yeah, going back to the Tehuelche people. Oh, that's true. And then other animals that lived around the same time and place included crocodilomorphs and fish. I'd say... Brachytrachylopan, or trachylopan, is a good example of picking a lane when you name a genus. Mm. Either pick the short neck or pick pan. You don't need both in the name. It's too many syllables. Oh, <laughs> I like it. Yeah. I guess it would still be really long because it'd be like brachytrachylosaurus or brachytrachylotitan. Parasaurolophus, same number of syllables. Yeah, and everyone talks about how easy Parasaurolophus is to say. <laughs> well, once you get used to it. That's true. Like any dinosaur name. Yeah. Moving on, I swooped Garrett with the fun fact this week. Yeah. Just got to be quicker, I guess. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> you do usually finish your new stuff before I do. So... This has to do with supercontinents, specifically Earth's next supercontinent. Mm hmm We always talk about the last one, Pangea. Yeah. This was published in National Science Review by Chuan Huang and others. And the gist is that the Pacific Ocean is shrinking, and that may give rise to Amasia, Earth's next supercontinent. Oh, they named it, too. Because it'll be America and Asia smashing together. Both of the Americas? I guess so. Yeah, and then Australia comes in to kind of hold it together. But too. they didn't want to make it Australasia. I guess not. They're not important enough, according to these researchers. They must not be Australian. <laughs> <laughs> I can't speak to the name of the supercontinent. <laughs> <laughs> you just know where it came from. Yeah. The supercontinent also isn't happening for like 300 million years, so... By the time it happens, who knows what it'll be called. <laughs> it probably won't be an English portmanteau. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, Earth has been in a supercontinent cycle since around 2 billion years ago. And then the continents change around every 600 million years. How it happens, the team said, is, quote, likely linked to both the properties of tectonic plates and their interactions with the Earth's mantle in the context of a secularly cooling Earth, end quote. And, quote, Earth's known supercontinents are believed to have formed in vastly different ways, end quote. Now, one way is when the previous supercontinent breaks up and closes internal oceans. And another way is when a supercontinent comes together, closing up a previous superocean. 
The team modeled Earth's tectonic plates. They found a gradual thinning of the oceanic crust over time, and that's due to Earth cooling over time. And they found that supercontinent cycles are sensitive to oceanic crustal thickness. So the thinner crust leads to supercontinents being formed by closing up a superocean. For this next cycle, that would be the Pacific Ocean, which is also the oldest ocean on Earth and was part of the superocean, the Panthalassic Ocean, which surrounded Pangaea. Hmm. I guess that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So the prediction is the next supercontinent, Amasia, is going to, it sounds kind of like amazing almost. It does. <laughs> it's going to form by closing the Pacific Ocean, and it's estimated to form in less than 300 million years. The Pacific Ocean already is shrinking a little bit each year, and the continents are slowly drifting toward each other. When the amazing Amasia happens, mm -hmm. the sea levels will be lower, temperatures will be higher in the interior of the continent, and there will probably be less biodiversity, which makes sense given all the climate changes. Yeah, it's kind of a bummer, actually, when continents connect. Mm -hmm. There's way more interesting biological diversity that happens when you have separate islands. Mm -hmm. Like you think about all the cool stuff on Madagascar. There were way cooler animals, more unique animals in South America before it connected with North America. Mm -hmm. Same thing with Australia. They've got all sorts of cool stuff that didn't evolve anywhere else. When everything's connected, you get this same sort of like really well adapted, usually a, an animal that's sort of a all arounder mm -hmm. and not like a really specific to that ecosystem, clever, you know, sort of looking thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Just a different kind of adaptation. It is, but it probably helps to have them like stick together every once in a while and then split apart again, mix it all up again. Sure. <laughs> really hard to say what that's like since humans have only ever known the seven continents. Yeah. Yeah. And the Pacific Ocean has been huge this whole time. I can't even imagine the Pacific Ocean going away. No, I can't either. It, even on a plane, it takes all day to get to Asia from the US. Mm-hmm. So the Pacific Ocean being a small ocean is just or non-existent ocean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you just walk to Shanghai Ooh. from California. <laughs> so weird to think about. Yeah. And that wraps up this episode of Ino Dino. Thank you for listening and if you are not already a patron, please join our community of dinoidals at patreon.com slash inodino, we have SVP coming up, and that means a lot of extra bonus content for our patrons. Thanks again, and until next time.